Matthew chapter 27, verses 55 to 61. Verse 55, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shrewd and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut into a rock. And he rolled the great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You guys may be seated. Joe, pray with me one more time. Father, I want to ask you to be clear with us this morning through your word. Speak to us the words that we do need to hear, the words that we are desperately in need uh, to consume and to overwhelm the lives that we are living today. Um, As you have uh, commanded us that we shall not live on bread alone, help us to live on the living word, the living bread uh, this morning. We thank you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. If you guys are taking notes, the title of today's message is called The Unsung Disciples. The Unsung Disciples. Uh, If you guys didn't know, the Bible consists of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New. And all the books point to one name that is above every other name, that is Jesus Christ. However, there are also many other names and many other characters in the Bible. Prominent figures that we can think of from the top of our heads like Abraham, Moses, King David, King Solomon, um, to uh, John the Baptist, Simon Peter, Apostle Paul. And if you were to add up all the different characters in the Bible, both named as well as unnamed or anonymous, uh, the number is close to 3,000. There are close to 3,000 characters that are mentioned in the Bible. That's a lot of names, or that's a lot of people. That means there are over 3,000 characters mentioned in Scripture who point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we are reading through these names, especially like in the book of Numbers, or especially in the book of Deuteronomy, or especially in the genealogies, uh, apart from the famous or the well-known characters, we tend to simply glance over these names, right? To glance over many characters whose names that we could hardly pronounce, as well as stories that seem very insignificant compared to others. Yet in God's eyes, there's a reason why they were included in the Bible. In God's eyes, not one character other than Jesus is more important than the other, for they all play a part in the history or his story that is included in the Bible. So today's story in our passage is no different. As we are introduced to this man named Joseph from Arimathea, as well as a group of Marys, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the sons of Joseph and James. And these stories can often be seen and read as a transition. Right? If you recall from our time in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters from ch- chapter after chapter, Matthew's been building up this scene, this uh, pivotal moment of the Gospel, leading all the readers to focus on the death of Jesus as well as the resurrection of Jesus. 
But between the cross and the empty tomb, between the crucifixion and the resurrection, what's sandwiched in between is our passage today. Regarding the burial of Jesus Christ and the two characters, the unsung disciples, the two groups of people who are involved yet don't really get too much credit, too much spotlight, too much attention. And although their actions might not seem extravagant or radical compared to the other characters in the Bible, these unsung heroes or these unsung disciples, I like to call them, are people who were faithful to Jesus. Let me say that again. Compared to all the other characters in the Bible, like Abraham, Moses, King David, Paul, John, these unsung disciples as well were just as faithful to Jesus Christ. And as we look into these characters, my hope and prayer is for us to have a humble attitude. A humble attitude in wanting to learn from them and how they served Jesus and how that impacted the kingdom of God. So first, let's look at Joseph from Arimathea. Joseph from Arimathea. The first thing we can see, first thing we can observe right off the bat is that Joseph was a Jew. Joseph was a Jew. Wait, how do you know that Joseph was a Jew? Well, we can tell by his Jewish name. Joseph is actually originated from a Jewish root name. And also we can tell from his hometown, Arimathea. And although Matthew does not state that Joseph was a Jew blatantly, we can see from other parallel Gospels, like the, uh, the Gospel of Mark and Gospel of Luke, that Joseph was a well-respected member of the Jewish council. If you look at Luke chapter 23, verse 50, uh, he says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. Mark chapter 15, verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. Jewish council. If you recall, during our time in the book of Matthew, during our journey together, whenever Jews were mentioned in the Bible, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, especially the Jewish religious leaders, like the Sanhedrin or the Jewish council, whenever they are mentioned in the Bible, they are never mentioned in a positive light. They are often portrayed in the negative. They were the ones who plotted against Jesus and initiated all of this to have Jesus arrested and killed. But isn't it ironic that because the Jews were supposed to be God's people, Jews were supposed to be God's chosen race, and to make matters worse, Jewish religious leaders were the people who were supposed to shepherd and love their people. But when we turn to Scripture, we see stories after stories after stories where Jews were more often than not being rebuked by Jesus because they weren't doing their job right. They were being rebuked by Jesus for their spiritual blindness, as well as their unwillingness to love. Whereas the Gentiles, who were considered the outcasts, who were considered the marginalized outsiders, they were the ones who saw Jesus for who they were. They were the ones who saw Jesus, who, who uh, saw the true identity of Jesus Christ. We see this with the Roman centurion back in Matthew chapter 8, as well as Pilate's wife. Through her dream, they, she, re, she realized that Jesus was innocent. And just before today's passage in verse 54, we saw that the Romans acknowledged the Gentiles, the outsiders, the marginalized, the unchosen race. They, were, uh, they recognized, they acknowledged at the foot of Jesus on the cross that truly he was the Son of God. So with the Jews getting all this bad rep, after the death of Jesus, what changed? 
Well, not much. Other than the fact that this man, this man named Joseph from Arimathea, who was a Jew, was unlike the other Jews that were mentioned, in, uh, mentioned previously. Despite being part of the Jewish council, we see in Luke chapter 23 that Joseph didn't consent with the council. Joseph did not agree with the council's condemnation of Jesus, but rather he was looking for the kingdom of God. Meaning Joseph was not for Jesus being arrested and being killed. So what's the significance about this? Through Joseph's faithfulness, his loyalty, and his obedience in the death of Jesus Christ, I believe it gives hope to the Jews. If you think about it, Jesus came from heaven to earth to minister the gospel truth, yet it was the Gentiles, the outsiders, who were supposed to be the marginalized race who accepted and who received and who recognized who Jesus for who he really was, yet his own people, the Israelites, have failed again and again to recognize their Messiah. But if Jesus died and that was it, then there would be no hope for the Jews. Yet what's amazing about this character through Joseph from Arimathea, Jesus is reminding everyone that there's still hope for the Jews. That although many Jews fail to be faithful to God, God has never given up on his people and he still is faithful to them. It's like the story of Noah's Ark. If you guys remember Noah's Ark back in Genesis, despite so much sin, so much disobedience, so much evil among the Israelites, God chose to be gracious to them by saving their race through the family of Noah. If you think about it, you think about Noah's Ark, you're like, man, it's the story of God's wrath. But in fact, it's a story of God's race. God should have wiped out the entire universe because they failed to be obedient to him. Yet God in his loving manner chose to save his chosen race through the family of Noah. If you look at the story of Noah in the Bible that we have today, it says Noah was um, a righteous man. That's why God chose him. No, Noah was just as sinful. The reason why Noah was righteous was because God has chosen him to do a righteous act. And although we think all the disciples of Jesus have fled after Jesus was captured in Gethsemane, we realize through today's passage that there's actually a few leftovers. Right? If you recall... Jesus was, praying in Mount, uh, Jesus was praying in Gethsemane, and then the Roman guards, through Judas' betrayal, comes to capture Jesus. And as soon as Jesus is captured, and Peter tries to chop off one of the Roman guards' ears, they run off, and they are nowhere to be seen. Peter tries to follow to the courtyard and see what's, what's going to end up happening to Jesus, yet even him ends up denying Jesus three times. Yet we realize through today's passage that there were actually a few people who were at the foot of Jesus when he was being crucified. Not all of his disciples fled, actually. We see in verse 57 that although Joseph was part of the Jewish council, who did not have a good rep, Joseph was still a Jew who was a disciple of Jesus Christ. He was not in the spotlight. Maybe he was a role player. He wasn't an all-star or a superstar, yet he still remained by Jesus Christ. And it is through characters like Joseph that God reminds us that he will never give up on his people. So first, Joseph was a Jew, but he was a faithful Jewish disciple of Jesus Christ. Another observation that we see from Joseph was that he was rich. He was rich. Man, if you thought Jews had a bad reputation in the Bible, 
The rich had an even worse reputation. There's a reason why Jesus teaches on the topic of money more than any other topics throughout his time on earth. Did you know that? Jesus talks more about money than sex, than more about any other sin, uh, addictions, murder, any other sin in the Bible. Jesus goes as far as to say you cannot serve both masters. He says you either serve money or you either serve God. You cannot do both. Back in Matthew chapter 19, there's a story of a rich young man. Anonymous, but it says he's a rich young ruler or a rich young man who asks Jesus what good did he must do to have eternal life. He has knowledge of Jesus Christ. But when Jesus reminds him to go and sell all of his possessions to give to the poor and then follow Jesus, the rich young man went away sorrowful. And the reason for that is because for he had great possession. Matthew 19, 16. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Meaning, these earthly treasures are nothing in comparison to the heavenly treasure that await for you. So go sell all of this, follow me, and I will give you treasure that is greater than you have ever seen before. Yet we see in verse 22 that when the young man heard this invitation, he did not accept the invitation, but he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Friends, the question I believe we need to ask here is, did the rich young man have great possessions of wealth, or did the great wealth possess the rich young man? Was he in possession of his wealth, or was his wealth possessing him? Jesus goes as far as to say in verse 23 that it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich, rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Can you imagine now, Back in the day, uh, these walls of Jerusalem had these very tiny gates. And the tiniest and the smallest, the narrowest gate is called the eye of a needle. Oftentimes we think eye of a needle is actually the physical, literal eye of a needle. No, eye of a needle back in the day meant the narrowest gate in Jerusalem wall. And in order for a camel to go through that, it was impossible. Impossible. And that's what Matthew, and that's what Jesus is getting at here. It is impossible, slim to no chance, for a rich man to enter to the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because you cannot serve two masters. So then why does Matthew mention the detail about Joseph being rich? Well, because it's the truth. Joseph was rich. Friends, if the Bible says you're rich, that means you're rich. That means you're, like, really rich. And historically speaking, only a rich man could gain access to Pilate. Only a rich man is actually granted access to talk to Pilate and grant, uh, ask for requests. And the only a rich man would, would be able to afford a new tomb of this nature. I mean, if you look with me in verse 59, we see that Joseph wrapped Jesus' body in a clean, clean linen shrewd and laid it on his own tomb, which he had cut in the rocks, with the state-of-the-art roll-away stone. Friends, that is like the luxury of all luxuries of tombs back in the day, only for the super, super wealthy. Not only that, if you had enough money to cut out a new tomb, that tomb is saved just for his family. Meaning, that tomb was for more than one person. 
It was supposed to be enough for all the families to be buried in. But for Joseph, he thought, no, Jesus alone gets to use this tomb. That's how rich he was. But not only was Joseph rich, we see that Joseph was wise with his wealth. He used it not for himself, but for the kingdom of God. Friends, there's, so, there's nothing wrong with being rich. Amen to that? I mean, many of us are college students, but there's nothing wrong about being rich. Abraham was wealthy. Job was wealthy until God allowed Satan to take everything away. Solomon was super, super rich, which shows us that even rich men, or rich men can be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Let me say this one more time. Rich men, rich people can be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. But going back to the story of the rich young man, the Bible says it's hard. It's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than a poor. Why? Because the poor is desperate for a savior. There is a sense of urgency, sense of desperation. But for the rich, they don't really have that sense of desperation. It's harder for you to be a faithful follower of Jesus the richer you are. Why? Because of temptations. Friends, as we graduate from college, we start earning salaries, right? Direct deposit. Every two weeks or every week, you check your bank account, and man, you get money. And you start climbing up the corporate ladder. You get signing bonuses. You get promotion, and you become more and more greedy than generous. Right? Isn't there, there's like no greater feeling right, than you walk into the mall and you can say, I can buy whatever I want. Friends, somewhere along the journey, if you start getting enticed by money, we quickly forget how God is the one who provided everything for us. Even when we don't deserve anything but hell, even though we don't deserve anything but the wrath of God, we start to believe that it was all me. I worked those 70-hour weeks. I'm the one who's pulled all-nighters. I'm the one who got that 4.0 GPA so that I can get this job. So why can't I be spending money the way I want? It's my money. Because of my hard work, my efforts, my talents, my success, and what better way is there to use this money than for myself? I deserve it. got to treat myself. Friends, the difference between Joseph and the rich young man is that one used their riches for the kingdom of God, while the other chose to use it for the kingdom of self. What about us? How do we view money? Someone once told me that if you really want to see the maturity of a person's faith, ask to see their bank statements, to see where they spend the majority of the money. I know some churches, I kind of envy them, I know some churches in discipleship they allow, the leaders tell them to bring their bank statements every week, every month, to keep each other accountable and see how they use the money that God's given them and where they're spending it. If we enforce that here, I don't know if any of you guys will come back, right? <laughs> Friends, God never looked down and hated upon rich people. And the reason why rich young men walked away in sorrow was not because he was never given the opportunity to hear the gospel. He was well aware of the truth of the gospel, yet for him, 
His possessions had too firm of a grip on his life. And for some of us, we see that tendency, don't we? But for Joseph, although he was rich, he was generous. And he didn't think twice about offering up his new cut tomb for Jesus' body. For Jesus, for the kingdom of God, it's not a matter of how much is it going to cost me, but it's a matter of how much more can I give and invest in the kingdom of God. How do we think? Do we think, oh, is it worth it? Is it worth my time? Is it worth this much? How much is it going to cost me? When in reality, we should be thinking like Joseph, how much more can I give and invest in the kingdom of God? So we see Joseph was a Jew. He was rich. And last but not least, through Joseph, I believe he's a lesson that we need to learn regarding Christian faith. As he displays for us what Christian faith ought to look like. Friends, Joseph was faithful in the way he loved Jesus even after Jesus died on the cross. You see, crucified bodies back in the day were at best, at best, given a dishonorable burial in a public plot. Normally, people who were crucified, their bodies would just be left hung on the cross to disintegrate on its own or to be thrown on the floor for the scavenger dogs to eat. But Joseph asks Pilate, for the body of Jesus so that he could provide a proper burial for him. When we look at all the verse throughout this section of today's passage regarding Joseph, he was the only subject, right? He's the one who asked Pilate. He took the body, he wrapped it, he laid it, he cut, he rolled, he went away. You see, back in the day, even now, rich men don't usually do slave work, right? They have slaves, or they ask people to do, they hire people to do stuff for them, but they don't really like to get their hands dirty. They hire, oftentimes they hire others to do work for them. But here in today's passage, we see Joseph rolling up his sleeves to serve the greatest servant of all. Now, of course, I'm sure he required help to get Jesus' body. I don't know how, like, strong he was, but I heard it takes more than one person to get a body down from the cross. But nonetheless, it was Joseph's love for Jesus that moved him into action. It was an active faith. Another thing to note, according to Levitical law, if you come in contact with a dead person, if you ever touch a dead person's body, that means you will be considered defiled. You will be considered unclean for seven days. Meaning you need to be outcasted no matter how rich you are, no matter how powerful you are. If you touch a dead person's body, you need to be outcasted for seven days. Yet nothing was going to stop Joseph from lovingly serving Jesus, even in his death, because to Joseph, there was no greater honor. To Joseph, there was nothing greater in life than to love Jesus and to serve Jesus. Through Joseph's loving kindness, this passage paints a picture for us in what Christian faith ought to look like. Our faith is to be a loving faith and an active faith. A loving faith and an active faith. Many can sit around and declare that they love Jesus, they've been a lover of Jesus for a long time, just like the 12 disciples who were nowhere to be seen. But as for Joseph, he put his money where his mouth was, literally, as he lovingly and actively, actively displayed his faith and his loyalty to Jesus Christ. That was, that was Joseph, Joseph from Arimathea. Now, Joseph wasn't the only faithful disciple on sight. 
we see another group of people, right? Uh, the Marys. The Marys. I, want, I just grouped them up as the Marys from verses 55 to 56 as well as 61. The first thing that might be obvious to us but might have been alarming back in the day is that they were women, right? They were women. They were women who were followers of Jesus Christ. Then they were women who were uh, eyewitnesses of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why is that alarming? You see, apart from the anonymous woman back in chapter 26 who broke her alabaster flask to pour perfume to anoint Jesus, apart from her, we don't really see very many women mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew. When we think of disciples especially, we think of the 12 men. We don't think about the women. However, I believe we need to recalibrate, remodify our minds from thinking that Jesus' ministry was an all-male movement because it wasn't women were involved and they were active participants as disciples of jesus christ not only that where all the where all the men all the all the men abandoned ship and ran for their lives when jesus was arrested in gethsemane other other than joseph and we see that it was the women who were present during Jesus' crucifixion the burial and as well as the resurrection you see, this is fascinating because back in the day, during first century Roman world, in the Jewish culture, women were mostly regarded as second-class citizens. Even in the Old Testament, if you look, the numbering, right? even in the math book of Matthew, the, the feeding of the 5,000, amongst those 5,000 number, women and children were not even counted for. But through this passage, God reminds us again that in His eyes... Women were not second-class citizens, but they have intrinsic value equal to that of men. Although they were not part of the original 12, they had just as much in part in doing God's kingdom work alongside Jesus Christ. We see this in verse 55 and how, how, the, how the Marys, both Mary Magdalene and the Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of sons of Zebedee, that they also had been following Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem. That's more than a 100-mile journey. You guys have your Apple Watches or on your phone. How many, how many miles do you walk in a day? Right? They walked over 100, they traveled over 100 miles on foot alongside Jesus as his disciple, as his followers. Not only were they following Jesus, not only were they women, but one thing that's fascinating is that we see that they were ministering to Jesus. Oftentimes we are ministered by Jesus, but we see the women ministering to Jesus, right? Verse 55, there were also women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. This is interesting because just as Joseph from Arimathea was serving the servant of all, these women were also serving Jesus by ministering to him. So who were these women and how are they ministering to Jesus? Well, although Matthew doesn't give us much information regarding these women, we can learn from the parallel Gospels in the Gospel of Luke. If you look at Luke chapter 8, we see first Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, she's known for being in a demonic bondage. Being in a demonic bondage as she was possessed by not one, but seven demons. Can you imagine that? She was, uh, she was possessed by seven demons which caused both physical as well as psychological illnesses. However, as Jesus rescues her from her darkest place and heals her, from that point on, she begins to follow Jesus and ministers 
alongside Jesus and to Jesus by providing for him as well as his other disciples out of her means. Right? If you look at verse uh, 3, who provided for them out of their means. What about the Mary, the mother? We are told nothing about this particular Mary other than the fact that she was the mother of Jesus' disciples. She was the mother of James and Joseph. However, one thing that we do know is that she had sufficient wealth. I mean, she was rich. And with it, she ministered to Jesus and his disciples during their journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. While Joseph used his wealth to serve Jesus after his death, the woman served Jesus during his ministry with their wealth. So then how can we be ministering to Jesus? Simply put, I believe we too need to put our money where our mouth is. Or to rephrase that, we too can use our wealth and our money to help serve in the ministry of the gospel. Now, although Jesus teaches a lot about money and wealth in the Bible, nowadays, church as well as pastors don't teach enough about what the Bible says about money. Perhaps it's because we've seen so many negative examples of pastors abusing their spiritual authority to guilt-tripping their congregation to give more to the church. However, if we truly understand what the scripture says about money, and if we really take to heart what Jesus says about our wealth, then our response should resemble the likeness of Joseph and the Marys. Now, I believe I mention this every Sunday morning when we have offering. But when we give to the Lord, we give for two reasons. If it is not for these two reasons, I encourage you, please do not give. We give, number one, because we declare that money is not our master. That money is not the master of our lives. That it doesn't possess us. But we declare that Jesus is the only one who we want to live for as our master. And he is the one who provides us all things. And the second reason is we believe what the Lord is doing in his church. We believe and we want to actively participate in his kingdom work by supporting financially the local church. Local church. Just as Jesus and his disciples had generous Marys to support their ministry, every local church needs generous members who believe in the vision of the church and who believe in the kingdom work being done through the local church to also support its ministries. Friends, how are you ministering to Jesus and his church? Now, I'm not saying you should all go and sell everything that you have to give to the church. Sadly, I know some Korean churches do that. But God's not interested in rich followers. He's interested in generous followers. God's much more pleased with the widow's offering of two small copper coins than the large sum that the rich people gave, right? Back in Mark chapter 12. Why? Because one gave out of abundance, while the other gave out of sacrifice. Mark 12, 43. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others who are contributing in the offering box. Why? For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty as she put everything she had, all she had to live on. What does that mean? That means she's depending on the Lord rather than her finances. 
Money is not the only way for us to minister to Jesus, but it's one of the main essential ways. Friends, how are you utilizing your money and wealth for the kingdom of God? Because to be honest, if I can be very blunt and very offensive, for the past six years I've been here, I've seen some of you guys never ever give offering to the church. But you guys are very good at spending your money for yourself. I would say, don't do it for us, don't do it for the church, but in, be, in your personal walk with the Lord, how does that make you feel? If you genuinely believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and if you want to partake in ministry, in ministering to Jesus and with Jesus for his kingdom, I would go back to our bank account. Now, some of you guys, oh, Pastor God, I, have no, I make no money. Well, you get allowance, don't you? You could at least use your allowance, a part of it, for his kingdom. I believe at the end times, on Judgment Day, we will have to reveal our bank statements, and I believe God will judge us depending on how also we spend our money and our wealth. Who are we spending it for? Why are we spending it? Sorry if it's uncomfortable. Money is also, it's not the only way for us to minister to Jesus, right? It's one of the main ways. It's not the only way for us to minister to Jesus, but it's one of the essential ways. But another way we can minister, minister to Jesus is, because, is by becoming his faithful witness to the church, uh, to the world. We can minister to Jesus by becoming his faithful witnesses to this world. So lesson in becoming faithful witnesses. As I mentioned before, these women were the only ones who were the official eyewitnesses to the greatest events of history, the crucifixion, the burial, as well as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which means that if it wasn't for these women, the church would have no testimony of death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If it wasn't for these women, historically speaking, and people still argue to this day, but historically speaking, Jesus dying on the cross and rising again is not true. It's not a fact. I believe God was very intentional in how he allowed and used these women as the only witnesses. Not Peter, right? Not John, not James, but these women. So why these women? Why not someone else? Perhaps it was to remind us that God's not interested in our accolades. He's not interested in our abilities. He's not interested in what we can offer him. But what he is interested in is our obedience in our loyalty, in our faithfulness to him. Male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, for God, what matters to him the most is if we're faithful or not. For these women, they ministered to Jesus by supporting his ministry when he was alive. But when even after Jesus was crucified, they continued to minister to Jesus. They continued to minister to Jesus by being by his side in his death, in his burial, as well as waiting for his resurrection. If you look at verse 61 of today's passage, it's just fascinating because after the burial of Jesus Christ, everyone leaves. Even Joseph leaves. But the woman stayed. The woman camped out alongside the tomb because they knew 
and they trusted in the promises of God that he will rise again. As we close this morning, I want us to quickly take a look back and to think back to the very beginning of our Christian journey. For some of us, we've got to go way back, right? When we first committed our lives to Jesus Christ, when we first realized that Jesus is real, that he's worth living my life for, and as we think to that moment, let's journey all the way from there up onto where we are today. For some of us, we've been on this journey for now 20, 30, 40 years. For some of us, it's only been a few months. And the question I want us to ask this morning is how are we partaking in the ministry of the gospel? How am I actively participating in the ministry of the gospel? How are we as Christians bringing Jesus' glory through our everyday life? How are we ministering to Jesus as a witness in our campuses? in our workplaces, in our homes? What kind of spiritual legacy am I leaving behind each and every day, wherever I go? Are you more interested in making a strong impression of yourself and who you are, your achievements, your talents? Or are you focused on making a legacy for Christ as his faithful witnesses? For both Joseph and these women, what they cared about the most was being faithful to Jesus until the very end. How about us? I pray that we will press on, encourage each other to leave a spiritual legacy, a spiritual imprint wherever we go that ultimately witness the beauty beauty of Christ for his glory. Rather than living for ourselves, rather than living for the riches of this world, I pray that we will use everything that God has already given us for his kingdom and for his glory. Let's pray together.